Nobody wants to be ordinary. Is there anything as boring as being plain? If you like plain pizza or plain bagels with plain cream cheese, people will roll their eyes at you. I know this because I like those things, and people always roll their eyes at me. And there's this part of me that's a little bit embarrassed uh, to order a plain bagel with plain cream cheese or just a pepperoni pizza uh, because I feel that when people, you know, look at me like I'm lame. Because ordinary is, is, is not cool. It's pretty boring. Especially in our culture, which is all about, in our world, we are all about standing out. We want to push the limits, push the boundaries, change the world, dream big dreams, break the mold. And if you aren't interested in those things, well, you're basically irrelevant. You're missing out, you're looked down upon, you're boring. Those, that's not cool. And sometimes in the church, we can adopt this kind of thinking as well. So we hear much about having an extraordinary faith. We want a radical faith. Certainly not an ordinary one, a radical one. Every generation of Christians is told by others that, uh, that this is the generation that's going to get it right. Uh, your parents, that was, that was lame. Uh, they didn't get it right. But you, you young people, you're going to get it right. In my, when I was a teenager and into the, when I was in my early 20s, it was the emergent church promising great things for us, uh, and then they delivered uh, really a rehashed liberalism. So it's, it's, it's common to think, if we're not at the head of some uh, radical movement or off living somewhere in a, in a poorer country somewhere, then we're wasting our lives or perhaps selling out for the sake of comfort. And so I, th I think then as Christians here, we can sometimes just sort of put our heads down and just kind of trudge our way through our days, um, believing that you know, we must therefore be uh, second-rate um, Christians, second-rate believers, since we're not at the head of any movement and we just live in Weyburn. There's a number of reasons I think that this can happen to us in the church. One is I think that the church, we can just simply adopt uh, our culture's infatuation with the next big thing. Um, you know, that, just look around you, next big thing's always happening, and that's what you, you want. We get that way too. What's next? What's big? We need the next big thing, something earth-shattering and new. So sometimes we just are, go along with kind of the, the culture around us. Uh, another reason is that our Christian heroes... Are those who are typically extraordinarily gifted, uh, who, or who are given an extraordinarily large influence uh, on people, whether those are current day heroes or heroes, Christian heroes from the past? Um, after all, you know, consider the reformers. I mean, they really did shake up the world. So we can sometimes assume that if we don't make an impact like somebody like Charles Spurgeon or whoever, then we feel like we, are, we aren't really being faithful then. I mean, nobody writes a biography about a guy who worked 40-plus years at a blue-collar job, who came home in the evening, uh, 
raised his kids in a godly home, attended church regularly, small church perhaps, uh, tried his best to serve in that church the best he could, gave what money he could, it wasn't a lot, but gave what money he could to missions and to, uh, to the church itself, loved his wife faithfully uh, for 60 plus years without any major moral failing and then died in a small rural town somewhere at a ripe old age. Nobody writes a book about that guy. And probably no one wants to buy that book because it just seems so very ordinary. So sometimes our, our heroes are those with extraordinary giftedness or uh, extraordinarily large influence. And then also when we read the Bible sometimes as well, we see that many of the major characters in the Bible were just that. They were major characters. They often had extraordinary gifts as well and were granted extraordinary fruitfulness. Not all of the you know, significant people in the Bible had a ton of fruitfulness in their ministries, um, but, but a lot of these folks were people through whom the Lord did great things. You think of Hebrews chapter 11 where it talks about all these people and what they did by faith, and it talks about shutting the mouths of lions, it talks about, um, about putting armies to flight, um, quenching flames. We think of these amazing and great things that took place as well. And so obviously, those who faithfully serve and are used by God in these more extraordinary ways are certainly worthy of our, our honor. And I'm glad there's books about these people. There's much we can learn and, and much we can be convicted about as we study and learn their lives. However, we also need to be careful. We need to be careful. The vast, the vast majority of believers throughout history were, were ordinary people. They were seeking to live their ordinary lives in faithfulness to God. Consider for a moment the Old Testament, the majority of Old Testament believers. What did they do with their lives? Think of Israelites. What did they do with their lives? Well, most of them farmed. They raised families. They didn't travel very far on exciting excursions to see the world. They sought to love their neighbors. They worshipped the Lord. They kept uh, the feasts that were mandated in the Old Testament. They would have uh, offered the sacrifices that were required, and this they would have done year after year, praying to God for a good harvest, um, and, and that would take up much of their lives. That's fairly ordinary. And it's much the same with the New Testament believer as well. Uh, consider on the day of Pentecost uh, in the book of Acts, uh, 3,000 people are saved that day. 3,000 people. That's, that's a lot of people, and, and what do we know of their lives after that day? We aren't told a whole lot about these 3,000 people. The book of Acts goes on and tells us more and, and sort of zeroes in on the ministry of Peter and later Paul and, and Philip's in there, and there's others in there as well, but we, we do know that persecution came uh, to the church in Jerusalem. So some of those 3,000 would have likely faced persecution, maybe even had to scatter but really, we don't know that much more about these people. They were, for the most part, ordinary people. 
And even those that we consider extraordinary, really, in the end, were ordinary men who were given much grace by God to do the things that they did. Michael Horton wrote a book. He's an author. Uh, He wrote a book called Ordinary. And he clarifies in that book that when he talks about uh, ordinary, he does not mean mediocre. So sometimes we think of ordinary as, as, as mediocre. Uh, and, and, and that's not what I mean. As we move ahead and as we use this term, I'm not talking about mediocre. We can do ordinary things with excellence. So it's not mediocre. But ordinary is referring to normal, everyday activities. And what, and what I would describe as just normal people. That's what I mean by ordinary. Not mediocre, but just normal everyday activities and normal everyday Christians, people. And I think part of the problem is that we have redefined what true godliness is, what true faithfulness looks like, so that if we're not starting a revolution, then we're really not doing much for the Lord. And that kind of thinking is dangerous. I mean, what does that tell a mother, for example, of a newborn baby? You basically can't be faithful until that baby's old enough to take care of itself, and then you can go off and do radical things. But is that what the Bible teaches? It's certainly not. There there is a sense in which every Christian, every believer in Christ, is a living miracle. There's a sense in which this is true. After all, a believer in Christ is somebody who has been supernaturally born again, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, whose old heart of stone has been removed and a heart of flesh has been replaced with it and they now desire the things of God that they once despised and hated. And this is, this is nothing, fact, nothing sh- uh, short of miraculous. This is amazing. And so when a believer is obedient to God in normal, everyday things, that is actually amazing. And so this is the issue in ordinariness, there is much that is in fact remarkable. You don't need to move to the slums of India to be fully pleasing to your Heavenly Father. That that can be a legitimate thing for people to do, to move to the slums of India to serve the Lord there, but that's not necessary for a person to be fully pleasing to their Heavenly Father. It's faithfulness in the everyday routines of work, parenting, friendship, loving the people next to you. This is ordinary, but it is, in fact, radical, if we want to use that phrase. And this is what we are called to, this kind of ordinary faith. Uh, And that's where we are at in our passage today, which is in 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 9. We're called to faithfulness in very ordinary ways. Again, not mediocre. We're not called to be mediocre and sort of who cares. That's not what ordinary is. We're called to faithfulness in ways that on the surface may not seem spectacular. And so I hope that as we look at these verses over the next two weeks, um, that it'll be encouraging to us, to you, as you... Go about the daily tasks that you have in front of you that I'm guessing most of which seem very ordinary and fall short of a revolution. So hopefully this will encourage us 
uh, to take joy in and, and, and to be faithful in ordinary tasks. And so as we come to these verses, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 to 12, we're going to look at how a faithful church is striving for faithfulness in the ordinary aspects of life, in the ordinary areas of life. And we're going to split this up over the next two, two Sundays, but here's what we're going to see. That ordinary faithfulness includes abounding in love, living quietly, minding our own business, and working hard. Those are the four things we're going to cover. We're just going to cover the first one today. And that's abounding in love. So ordinary faithfulness includes abounding in brotherly love. So let's read 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 9. We'll read through to the end of verse 12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. We saw back in chapter 4, verse 1, this would have been two weeks ago, I guess, uh, back in, in verse 1, that Paul is beginning a new section in, in 1 Thessalonians in which he desires to continue to see the Thessalonians continue striving towards pleasing God. And then as we saw, he began in, in uh, verses uh, 3 through 8, he begins to talk about the issue of sexual purity, that they should strive to please God in their purity. And now he's moving on, but he's still calling them. It's still in the context of calling them to, uh, to, to striving to please God more and more. Verse 9 begins with the words, now concerning. And this is often used um, by Paul as a, a formula. It's a formulaic expression when he's responding to something that was written to him. So we see this in 1 Corinthians uh, 7.1, I think, is, is a clear place where it is. Where This is, this is a, a phrase that, that shows he's responding now to a letter that was written to him. So, so likely when Timothy, uh, in chapter 3, verse 6, we saw Timothy had come back from the Thessalonians. So he's come back to Paul, and he's brought with him a letter now that Paul is now responding to. <clears throat> and so uh, the first question evidently had to do with a desire the Thessalonians had for further instructions on how to love one another. They had some questions on how to love each other. Um, the, words, the word here is, is brotherly love. And this brotherly love is a, a reference to uh, love between Christians specifically. That's what this brotherly love is. It's a familial love for Christian brothers and sisters. And Paul responds by saying, interestingly, that they have no need for anyone to write them about it. He says, concerning brotherly love, this is the, issue, the topic they've asked him about, you have no need for anyone to write you. So he says, you have no need for this, and then he gives the reason why. He says, for, second half, verse 9, he says, for, the reason is, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You don't need me to write you, to you about this. You've been taught by God 
to love one another. So what, what does he mean by that, that they've been taught by God? Well, in the, in the Old Testament, when the New Covenant is prophesied about, it is evident that all who are in the New Covenant, the New Covenant community of faith, that is the church, would know God personally. So in Israel, not every Israelite was a person of faith. So you didn't become an Israelite by faith. You became an Israelite, part of the community, the nation, by being born into the nation. You were born as a child to Israelite parents, and you are, boom, part of the nation. You're part of this covenant community uh, whose God is the Lord. But in the new covenant, so now you join the community of believers, not by being physically born, but by being born again. You, get, you become part of the church when you get saved, when you become a Christian, when the Lord regenerates you and gives you his spirit. So you, you enter now the new covenant community, the people of God, by the Spirit of God changing your heart and actually taking up residence within you. So Jeremiah 31, 33 and following says this. This is what I think Paul has in mind when he says you've been taught by God and don't need to be written about this, written to about this. He says, uh, Jeremiah 31, 33 and following, for this is the covenant, he's talking about this covenant to come, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And listen, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So he's envisioning a new covenant to come in which everybody who is part of this covenant is a believer. Everybody is regenerated, has the Holy Spirit within them. And so there's a sense in which then you don't have to say, know the Lord, because if you are in that covenant, you do know the Lord because you have been saved. You have been regenerated. You have the Spirit. And so I think then what Paul is saying to the Thessalonians is that they have the law of God written on their hearts. They know what love is, and they know that they are to love God one another. And so why is Paul convinced of this? Well, he gives the reason for that in verse 10. He says, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So he says, you don't need me to write you about this for you have been taught by God to love one another for the reason I know this to be true is this is what you're doing. You are loving others. You are bearing fruit in this manner. So what Paul's doing here, I think, is encouraging them. They have, in fact, demonstrated, as a church, they've demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit, namely love. They are loving other people. They're loving one another, and they're loving those outside the church throughout Macedonia, the region that they lived in. And they've been doing a good job of this. And so this makes Paul confident that this group he's talking to, that he's writing to, are truly born again. They're truly in the new covenant. They're really believers, and they really are taught by God. The law is on their hearts, and this is evidenced in the fact that they are loving one another, and they've been loving other Christians throughout 
Macedonia. So I think he, he is encouraging them here. Now, this doesn't mean, uh, when it says you don't need to be taught about this, this or written about this, I should say, um, and even what we read in, in Jeremiah 31 about not being needed to be taught, uh, this doesn't mean that there's never a reason to give instruction or to receive instruction if you are a Christian. In fact, Paul is about to give them further instructions. Uh, we're about to read it. And Paul's, uh, much of Paul's ministry and much of this letter, if Paul thought there was no reason to instruct if someone's uh, a believer and has the Spirit, if there's no reason for teaching, uh, this letter would really be pointless since there's a lot of teaching in the letter. Um, Paul also clearly says that uh, teachers for example, are uh, part of Christ's gift, uh, the gifts to the church. Um, the Lord has given teachers and pastors and even the apostles themselves. So it doesn't mean that there's never reason for further instruction. Rather here, what Paul is doing is he's encouraging them. They might not see that they are doing well in regard to love. They have these questions, they have some struggles, they've got some issues in this manner, and he starts by encouraging them. Actually, you're doing well with this. Uh, you don't really need me to write this about you. You know, uh, within, you, know you are to love, and, uh, and you're demonstrating that you know this by your fruit, by the fact that you are loving people throughout Macedonia. And so I think he encourages them before he then moves on to give instruction. And the reality is sometimes it's hard. It's hard for us to see fruit in our lives. Sometimes it's a lot easier to see uh, the things we struggle with, the sins that we battle. And we might feel like we're horrible at loving other people. And sometimes it's helpful when other people encourage us and help us see that, no, there, there is some fruit in your life. Here is some fruit. And I think this is what Paul is doing here with the Thessalonians. So I think that's even instructive for us uh, to be encouraging one another when we see fruitfulness in, in the lives of others around us. And even when I look out at this church, I see evidence. I see evidence of the love of God. I see fruitfulness as you lift one another up in prayer, as you call on one another and see how people are doing as you give generously uh, to the church and elsewhere as well. Um, and, and there's many other ways in which there's lots of evidences of love as you seek to uh, lead your families or those under your care, um, as you seek to uh, reach out to people around you and have concern about those around you. Um, there is love in this church. And I think we should be encouraged by that. And then Paul goes on in verse 10 to say, But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. <clears throat> so he encourages them. They are loving people. He's seeing the fruit. But now he's saying, but I, I exhort you, I urge you, do this more and more. Keep going with this. You're not done. There's more that can be done. There's more love you can be showing. And then he urges them, to do four things. And the first one is to abound in brotherly love. 
That is to continue to love more and more. We're going to cover the other three um, next week with the rest of the verses, the rest of this passage. So as he says to, to do this more and more, to love more and more, it's the same wording that we find in verse, we, we looked at in verse 1, uh, there where, uh, again, he says, uh, just as you are doing, that is pleasing God, you ought to do so more and more. It's the idea of abounding or overflowing in the work. So as he's here talking about brotherly love and doing it more and more, he's talking about overflowing in this work, overflowing in our love. That's what he's encouraging us to do. He also, back in chapter 3, uh, verse 12, near the end of chapter 3, uh, we talked about that too, where he, he prayed that the Lord would make you increase and abound in love for one another. So same idea there. He, he's praying that they'll increase and abound in love, and now he's urging them to abound in love as well. <clears throat> and again, this is specifically a brotherly love. This is a love for Christians that is specifically in, in mind here, in Paul's mind here. And in many ways, this is a very ordinary thing. That doesn't mean it's easy, but it's, it's not that, ra- it's, in a lot of ways, it's not that radical. It's, it's, it's pretty ordinary. But, but, it, but love is not an abstract thing that we just have. Oh, I have love in my heart. Oh, I have love. Love requires an object a person, something, someone to love. We don't just love generically. We don't just love the church out there. We are called to love specific people who have specific names and they have individual faces. And these specific people we are called to love also have particular quirks and sins, and irritating habits, and annoying things that they do that get on our nerves. And if we're all honest, we all have those. We all have those things. And if you don't think you do, ask anyone. Ask your spouse, and then if you're not, you're your closest friends, and they will know the things that are annoying about you. And we are called to continually strive to love one another more, warts and all. In chapter 5, when we get to chapter 5, we'll see that there were some some, likely some very um, practical issues in the church that was making loving one another difficult, that they were probably asking about. So in chapter 5, we see that Uh, Some were idle. In fact, we'll see that even more next week as we get to verses 11 and 12. Um, Some people were idle and not working. They were busybodies, talking, stirring things up perhaps. They were depending on others in the church for, for money while they just didn't work, though they were capable of working. Others lacked courage. This is chapter 5, verse 14, you'll see that. Lacked courage. They were weak. And so on. You can see how these, you know, those kinds of issues might make it difficult to love somebody. So they didn't just have some feeling inside that, oh, when I think of the church in general, I feel good about things. It's a love that actually is directed towards specific people with specific names, faces, 
issues. Love is hard. In the book I mentioned earlier uh, by Michael Horton called Ordinary, he relays an account of a woman who, in her early 20s, responded to the call to be radical uh, by going to a, a poor area of Africa, uh, spending time with those in poverty. And now, in her 30s, living in the United States, married, raising young children, she makes this fascinating observation. So this is what she says. She says, what I need courage for is the ordinary, the daily everydayness of life. Caring for a homeless kid is a lot more thrilling to me than listening well to the people in my home. Giving away clothes and seeking out edgy Christian communities requires less of me than being kind to my husband on an average Wednesday morning or calling my mother back when I don't feel like it. She goes on to say, I, I suspect that for me, getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. Loving one another in this room might not sound extreme, but it's what we are called to. It's what God would have us be faithful in. And I would suggest that for most people, ordinary acts of love for the people all around you day after day is harder than taking a week off to go do good works in Haiti. Not that it would be bad to go serve in Haiti for a week, but I'm guessing for most of us that would be easier than just being faithful day in, day out, in whatever life situation we find ourselves in. For a mother to wake up and set out to loving her children who simply seem to take and take and take and take from her day after day after day is a noble and beautiful and good and godly pursuit, though very ordinary. It's not a second-rate obedience. For a dad to come home after a long day of work and, though tired, set to work loving his family by giving attention to his kids and whatever things it is that they are interested in, by loving his wife, helping clean up, leading his family and reading the Bible and prayer, to do this consistently is hard work. It's a difficult love. And it's a pretty ordinary task. For anyone to make effort to know and love the people around us in this room who have personalities that clash with ours is difficult. Those who love being in crowds are going to have a hard time understanding and loving those who don't, those who love quiet. Those who love the quieter have a hard time perhaps loving and understanding those who just love the crowd and love being in the middle of it, and who get energy from that. Everyone struggles to understand and love others who wrestle with different sins than our own. 
those who speak their mind easily struggle to understand and love those who battle with timidity and fearfulness and tend to not say what needs to be said. And those who are cautious or shy struggle to love and understand those who are always seem to be speaking and perhaps sometimes speak too soon. It's sometimes hard for me to be patient and understanding with Christina when she struggles with certain sins that I don't particularly battle. It seems odd to me that someone would find that difficult. It doesn't seem like it should be. But then that same thing gets flipped around, and I struggle with things that don't make any sense to her either, and she has to struggle to understand and be patient and loving with me. And this is how it is for all of us. And this is why we're told to bear with one another. And this is also why we're to correct one another in gentleness, viewing the log in our own eyes. Ephesians 4.2 is talking about being called to walk worthy of the calling. Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. Colossians 3.13, we are to be bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds together, everything together, in perfect harmony. So we are to bear with one another. We are called to love the people all around us and to do so more and more. The people whose faces and names you know are in this room, some are not able to be here. Those people in this room that are very different from you. So let us abound in this work, overflow in this work, and let us repent when we fail at this. And let us not grow weary of the ordinariness of loving each other well. Well, how can we not grow weary in this? How can we abound in this? I would suggest that we fix our eyes on the love of our Savior and on the gospel. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. God's love is shown to us. How do we know love? By examining the gospel, by examining Christ dying for us. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 3.16 By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. These are all encouragements to Christians, to believers, toward loving others because Christ has first loved us by dying for us to rescue us. And so let me just 
go through this good news with us again to just be reminded of this, to be reminded of what Christ has done for us. God is holy. And as we read earlier from from Psalm uh, 121, He's the creator. He created heaven and earth. He created all things. 1 John says that God is light and in Him there is no darkness. There is no stain of sin. There's nothing questionable about His character. He is pure brilliance and light. And we know He exists. Even if we've suppressed this knowledge, creation screams it. The creation did not just come from nowhere, despite what people might have us believe in our world today. And God created not only the world, but mankind. He created humans. And Adam and Eve sinned against God, plunging the world into sin, into chaos. It's why it's a mess as we look around us today, because of sin. But we also, all individually, have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sin is transgressing God's Laws, things like lying, deceiving people, stealing, being greedy, coveting what other people have that the Lord has not given you, lusting after other people. Those times we did things we knew were wrong and our conscience screamed at us and we did it anyway. And we will all stand before God one day and give an account. And God has established the penalty for sin as being an eternity spent in hell, in the lake of fire. And this is right because God is a holy God. That might sound extreme, but it's because we have a low view of who God is. Our violations of His laws and His commands, our unwillingness to submit ourselves, our desire to dislike him, our, our dislike of Him, our hatred of God and His rules and our scoffing at them, it's not a small matter. This is cosmic treason. And this is bad news because we will stand before Him a good and perfect and holy, righteous judge. But God in His mercy, being rich in mercy, sent His Son Jesus. Truly God, truly man, He came to the earth. He lived the perfect Life, he did not deserve death. Death is the punishment for sin. He knew no sin. He did not deserve it. But on the cross, the wrath of God against all the sins of those who would believe in Jesus Christ were poured out upon his son, Jesus, and he took the penalty for those sins. He was sacrificed and he died. The righteous one, Jesus, substituting in for the unrighteous ones, sinners. He died, he was buried, but he rose from the dead. He rose from the grave on the third day. Sinful people die and stay dead. But Jesus was not sinful. He was truly God and truly man, and his sacrifice was acceptable to the Father, and he rose from the dead in power and in victory over sin and death. And because he's raised, he can justify sinners. He can make us right with the Father. After he rose, he then ascended to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for those who believe in him. 
And he's going to come back from there one day to judge the living and the dead. And he will do so in righteousness. He will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. And then he will usher in the new heavens and new earth. And God now commands all men everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin, to confess it to God, and to place their faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. All who call upon him will be saved. He is the good shepherd. He will not cast you out. Acts 4.12 says that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through him. And so... We implore you, if you, don't, if you have not repented and trusted in Jesus, to be reconciled to God, to confess your sins, to acknowledge your unworthiness, your sin against Him, and to cry out for His mercy and His grace. And this is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel, that sinners can be forgiven and saved by God's grace. And this church is what we are. Sinners saved by God's grace. And we are called to abound in love for one another. How can we possibly do that when we are difficult people to love? Well, we look to the cross and we see a God who loved us while we were yet sinners. We don't clean ourselves up and then come to him and he decides to accept us. We acknowledge our filthiness, we acknowledge our sin, and he saves. We are called then to abound in love for one another and this will happen in many ordinary ways, this love. But our reason for loving one another and our model of love is nothing less than the amazing love that God has shown for sinners. We, in closing, we, we need men and women who are willing to uh, risk much to take the gospel to places where it's never been, where people speak different languages. We, we need people who are willing to do that. We, Christina and I know we have friends who are preparing to go in the fall to a place just like that, and we're not worthy of those people. We, we need people to do that. But we also need to recover the importance of faithfulness in the ordinary aspects of life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that whether you eat or drink, that's pretty ordinary. Or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Abounding in love for one another is one of those things. Nobody's going to write a book about us. But that's fine. That's okay. Because love for one another is evidence that God is among us. It's evidence we've been taught by God, as Paul says. And it is a beautiful and good thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your gracious, gracious love in your salvation. 
thank you for loving us first, as we would never have come to you if you had not loved us first, if you had not drawn us with your cords of love to see the beauty and sweetness of the cross and of Christ. Forgive us, God. We are sinful. We so quickly and easily lose sight of this. We get so fascinated by worldly, empty things. We need help, and we pray to you, our helper, to come and to give us help. Help us to be faithful in ordinary areas of love, help us of life. Help us to love one another. Help us to love those who are right around us in our own immediate families, and help us to love one another in this church family. And help us to love Christians the world over. Pray that you'd work this in us and, and encourage us. I pray that we would leave encouraged to go out into our ordinary lives and to seek to show love to our families when we go home from here. And everyone's tired. I pray that we would not view this as somehow some secondary uh, work, as though it's not really pleasing to you if we're not doing something that our world would call radical. I pray that you'd encourage us to faithfulness in these things, that we would pray for one another and lift each other up as we, in, in prayer as we all seek together to be faithful. God, I pray that you would grant us love for one another, that you would do this, that that you might be pleased. And again, we just give you praise for this, this church and for the love that exists here already and the work you've already done. And I pray that you would just help us to keep striving and keep working uh, to love one another and to abound in this good, ordinary, yet good work. We pray you do this for your namesake. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.